Hello, I'm Rachel Deer, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select this webinar to claim credit. Today's learning objective is to describe population immunity towards Omicron BA4 and BA5 subvariants. Today's learning objective is to describe implications of pre-existing immunity on rapid antigen testing. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Gilead Sciences, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Joining him to discuss the Omicron variant and COVID-19 testing is Dr. Michael Mina, Chief Science Officer at EMED and an epidemiologist, immunologist, and physician. Doctors, thank you for your time today. Thanks so much. Just delighted that uh, uh, Michael Mina has been able to join us today and talk about some of the uh, frequent issues that I think Many uh, of the clinicians are fielding from patients as well as uh, family and friends since uh, uh, the pandemic and the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, certainly is not dissipating. And exactly what's happening is, uh, I think we have a less clear picture since many people are not even getting uh, tested or they're doing home testing and we just don't have as much of a basis. Um, uh, Michael, we've been dealing with this for two and a half years now and gone through uh, a lot of variants. This RNA virus continues to evolve. Uh, what's sort of your view of what's happened so far? I mean, is this going to be the new, uh, maybe not seasonal influenza? Is this uh, going to be a virus that will always cause more trouble and be with us, but, uh, you know, sort of replace influenza as a main concern? You know, I, I think in the short term, obviously it has, uh, but in the medium and long term, I don't really believe that it's going to replace influenza. I think, um, you know, what we're witnessing, in my view, is uh, on very public display is the, the, the sort of the birth of a new virus into the human population. And what we're witnessing is, is that if we think of, you know, if we use this in terms that we're all comfortable with, we kind of saw this virus jump into humans as a baby virus. You know, it's a, it's a very young virus and it had a lot of room to stretch its legs. It had to learn to crawl and to walk. And unfortunately, we're now seeing it learn to run. Uh, and uh, it would be naive of us to have thought that this virus wasn't going to have a, an amazing uh, capacity to mutate and have variants spin off of it very quickly in a time frame that uh, maybe traditionally we're not used to for coronaviruses, for example, uh, but we're also not used to looking at new coronaviruses when they first jump into the human population in a fully uh, unoptimized or non-optimized fashion, they then have to 
uh, they, they learn, they learn very quickly how to, you know, learn not actually, but they mutate and they find new ways to bind receptors that allow them to have better uh, infection rates, better transmissibility. And the only thing a virus uh, is really knows how to do, if you will, is to uh, keep advancing its fitness. Uh, and that's really what we're witnessing. And the reason I say that uh, in response to the question, is this going to be the new thing that we worry about? I do think it's eventually going to hit, uh, hit a plateau where it, where it has found uh, its sort of optima, uh, where it, doesn't, it won't be able to readily sort of optimize in, in much greater fashion. Eventually it'll get there. And, and what we're also seeing in parallel is people are uh, developing pretty darn robust immunity from both vaccines uh, and infections, uh, even though it sometimes gets lost in the mix, but people are much more immune today than they were at the beginning of this pandemic. And I think, uh, unfortunately, we have to grow out of this pandemic, just like a child has to grow out of their high-risk uh, period of life in the first few years as they develop immunity. We're doing that as adults, we're growing out of it by building layers of immunity. What's really different is A, we're adults doing it, which means that we're largely higher risk and B, the virus is also in parallel evolving. And so it's prolonging the experience. Yeah, I, I think, you know, certainly we get the sense that uh, this, uh, especially RNA viruses have this capacity uh, because of the way they make new RNA molecules to introduce lots of mutations that uh, eventually do improve fitness. Uh, <clears throat> but at the same time, uh, the, the, the picture at the moment seems to be the latest Omicron sublineages uh, that are being uh, monitored and the concern are BA5, uh, predominantly also to a degree BA4, all of which have evolved from BA2 and from the earlier Omicron variant. Uh, these uh, seem to be um, uh, moving rather quickly or at an advancing speed, probably because of the sheer number of infections and the infectivity. Uh, what's your viewpoint so far, both on the pathogenicity uh, of the virus at these changes and also its immune evasiveness, um, you know, uh, both to maybe natural immunity? Well, wh why don't I just stop there and then we'll get to vaccine and natural immunity in a minute. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, certainly BA four and five are the are two of the current uh, variants that we should be that we are all keeping our eyes on, in my view, uh, rightly so. Uh, they are, you know, I think what's very important for people to know is that these new variants aren't um, fundamentally uh, more immunologically evasive, in the sense that the virus itself is not picking up new tricks to uh, evade our immune system in any certain way. It's what is happening for people who aren't as familiar with this space is that uh, it's, they're more immune evasive given that our immunity was derived from a previous variant. Uh, and so again, we will get through this wave of BA4 and 5, but certainly these two variants to your point, they, are, they have mutated significantly now yet again. Uh, they're, they are quite distinct at this point from the original Omicron variant. And, uh, and that means that a lot of the gains that were made in terms of immunity from getting vaccinated or previously infected from uh, Alpha, Delta, uh, and the original Omicron, they are only uh, providing a limited amount of immunity. Uh, and as the virus keeps marching away, 
it gets to know what that immunity looks like and it marches away to try to evade it. And uh, so we're in this game of catch up. And I do think that uh, BBA four and five, uh, most people, uh, as has been the case throughout most of the pandemic, uh, most age groups aren't at massive risk. But one of the really concerning things, if you look at the hospitalization rates, uh, the people who are at the greatest, who's, who, where you really see hospitalizations and deaths increasing again with this new wave, are of course the older individuals in our communities. Uh, those individuals over 65 and certainly over 75. And this is a reflection, not just of their uh, inherent increased susceptibility to this virus, and that's for a number of reasons, but also in my view, it's uh, the, the relative increase in susceptibility we're seeing in the older age classes compared to the younger for BA4 and 5, I think it is reflecting the fact that older individuals are not maintaining the, uh, their immunological memory as well as younger people. And so if you had some residual memory, maybe it's T cells that you derive from Omicron or from Delta, uh, as, you, as we age, we're just not able to maintain that immunological memory repertoire as well as a younger individual. So we're seeing this kind of compounded and unfortunately the very people who have always been at the highest risk are also the people who have, for whom it's going to be most difficult to get the most benefit from, uh, to, to maintain the most immunological memory. And so that's my concern as we see BA4 and 5 come through and new waves. I'm very concerned that the older individuals in our population just are going to have a very hard time sort of outgrowing this pandemic. They will continue being susceptible because, uh, because immunological, the architecture of our bone marrow, for example, to store down plasma cells once we hit 70 years old really starts to fall apart relative to a 40 year old in it. It's a, it's a very, very challenging uh, situation that, that uh, we find ourselves in as a community, uh, but in particular, our senior citizens. Yeah, so earlier this spring, I, I shared the, the same point. I have parents in my mid eighties and they've been like, ah, I don't need a second booster. And I'm, I'm saying, well, really now is the time before we really get in the throes of this to consider that booster, especially you know, the data that suggests after nine months after your last immunization, uh, you're gonna lose some of that protection against severe illness and hospitalization. But on the other hand, uh, you may uh, have seen publications <clears throat> from South Africa, which had a, a four and five uh, earlier this spring, a significant wave there. And, uh, you know, some of the, uh, from a preprint, some of the transmissibility numbers suggested are not approaching measles uh, yeah. with this. So highly infectious. But on the other hand, uh, other reports have not really seen the rise uh, in hospitalizations. And I was just wondering if you have any insights. Obviously, South Africa is a much younger country, but they have older people too. Uh, and of course, they had sort of a different immunization approach initially with the Janssen vaccine, um, uh, with some quarter or perhaps more of the population getting some mRNA immunization, uh, either primary or, or booster. Um, any, how far can we extrapolate from the South African experience? Are we just going to see a rise in numbers just because of the sheer number of infections um, or, or, you know, um, what, what's your sense of what we're just seeing probably just at the, the sort of cusp of what four and five might do? Yeah, I think, I think what we are seeing across the globe uh, is a, a very, very complex relationship between 
Uh, what has recently happened in that location uh, right before, or in this case, BA4 and 5 come through? Uh, you know, so in the United States now, it's been uh, six months or so since we were really at the peak of our Omicron uh, surge. And, uh, and the, the, I, I, I am concerned that the longer we go, you know, I don't want people to take this the wrong way and think that I'm advocating for us to have outbreaks sooner, but uh, it's now been around six months since we had Omicron and BA4 and 5 is now coming on the heels of when we know that a lot of people's immunity is starting to wane. Uh, and I think we should expect that as we move into the late summer and fall, we will see significant increases in hospitalizations. And that's going to be a reflection of, uh, of a number of different things. What are, what are our immunological histories, both from when were people largely last boosted? When did a major outbreak come through and infect 70% of the people in the community, which likely Omicron did? Uh, and how long has it been at the time when a new variant like BA4 and 5, which as you mentioned, is exceedingly transmissible, uh, it seems uh, by all accounts, uh, it is spreading very, very quickly. In the United States now, it's probably much more prevalent. We actually know that it's much more prevalent than the uh, reported case numbers are suggesting, which on the one hand is good in that if we know there's many more cases that aren't being reported, then the, the actual hospitalization rates are lower than the, those being calculated. Uh, but it also doesn't really bode well for us, I think, as we move into the next few months, that this is happening just six months after we went through one major wave, that we're already seeing another major wave uh, roll through, and it's being and it's associated with with what we see are significant hospitalizations at the moment for the for the older individuals in particular. Uh, so I I do think while we can look at places like South Africa and say, you know, what's happening there versus what's happening here. Uh, it's not just the demographics, but it's really the temporal dynamics of what waves are coming through when uh, before a new uh, variant emerges. That's really going to impact the trajectory of that variant, that new variant in that particular community. Yeah, I, I think you make some really uh, excellent points that you have to understand much more than just a, a simple binary or uh, you know components and so on. So, one of the more interesting things uh, recently has been both the data and the decision, uh, both of the advisory committee and uh, the Food and Drug Administration about the upcoming booster reformulation. And I don't know if you sat through the advisory meeting, the VRPAC, or watched some of the video, but um, you know there was a lot of data presented there, including um, modelers, for what it's worth, uh, forecasting that a novel variant will come about this uh, fall and because of waning immunity and the change, they're estimating anywhere from, you know, ninety thousand to two hundred plus uh, thousand deaths. You know, which uh, sounds pretty substantial. So, you know, that all prompted uh, the uh, decision to ask for the mRNA vaccine to be bivalent, uh, but the Omicron component being four and five based. Um, there were uh, two negative votes uh, there uh, with the idea that they're not going to be around. And uh, the WHO decided to go with BA1 because uh, perhaps that it's a bit more immunologically distinct uh, than uh, the uh, four and five sublineages. Uh, you know, of course, I, you know, there's no, you cannot possibly fault any decision here, I think. 
uh, just because just like with influenza, you're doing the best you can here. So uh, I think everyone liked the Omicron bivalent nature. The question is what to choose. Um, and uh, so a choice has been made. And, and it means that a lot of the pre-positioned BA1 vaccine that's already been produced by some of the companies uh, won't be used here in the United States. And we might only see the booster in November. So that fits in nicely with, uh, as a segue, I think, to your idea about the dynamics and immunity and uh, the positioning uh, of this. And um, uh, just some thoughts about those decisions. I mean, I, you know, there's, uh, as I said, lots of wisdom, but uh, <laughs> little yeah. ability to, to navigate precisely. And, uh, and also, um, what should people do? I mean, are we should we really just stick with the booster we have and immunize now before this wave really becomes prominent? Or do you wait for the reformulated booster? A lot of people don't like getting jabbed. So thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I, my, my basic thought on this is uh, I, I'm, I continue to be a little bit surprised about the direction that the discussion has taken uh, that we're even talking about monovalent versus bivalent in the context of an mRNA vaccine that's actually quite uh, malleable to highly multivalent uh, vaccines. Um, there are a few things that I think we're being quite, uh, we're limiting our scope too much. Uh, we continue to vaccinate, uh, for example, primarily against the spike protein. This is generally because the spike is how the virus is binding to our cells, as, as you know, we know at this point. And uh, it's to develop neutralizing antibodies, ideally, that are going to limit the ability of that spike virus to bind to our cells. But, uh, but we also know that by, by really focusing there, this is the very first thing that this virus wants to change. We've seen it with every variant to come out. We saw it in an amazing fashion when Omicron first emerged. Uh, you know, really astounded the world, I would say, in terms of how many, how plastic this virus still was to develop a whole new series of mutations uh, in its spike protein. Uh, and I think what, you know, if I were, uh, you know, had, if I were really leading those discussions or, you know, had a, had a different uh, job description, you know, I would really be pushing us to say, should we be focused on just bivalent we know that the immunological uh, system is massively, is capable of massive scaling in parallel to identify and, and respond to multiple proteins. Uh, at once, a single protein is actually many, many epitopes just in its own. Uh, so talking about single valent, bivalent, or multivalent, I think we should really be thinking a little bit more broad about, well, do we have to make that decision? What if we do put BA1 and BA4 and five spike proteins? And, what if we also put proteins, if we can figure out how to stabilize them, you know, after they are uh, translated from the mRNA, uh, an envelope uh, or a nucleocapsid protein, something else for T cells to bind to. A T cell, uh, as an example, really doesn't care what protein it is that it's looking at. When a T cell first uh, is able to identify that a virus has infected a cell, and go after it, it's actually only ever seeing a protein after it's been, after the virus has been chopped up in a million pieces uh, by, you know, we have actual mechanisms within the cells to do that and they get presented. So we should really, I think, also be saying, what are some of the more conserved proteins 
uh, that we don't expect to mutate so rapidly that we could also throw into this vaccine so that we can have T cells uh, that are going to continue responding even if the spike protein were to completely uh, alter. And so that's been a bit of a frustration of mine has been that this conversation seems to be locked in with a more traditional approach to making vaccines, but the whole promise of mRNA vaccines has always been the ability to scale the, the valency and, and other things like that. Yeah, I, I you know, th those are uh, great points and certainly the utility of this whole uh, vaccine mechanism is amazing. On the other hand though, real clinical trials would be needed for safety for any new proteins and there's already a lot of vaccine hesitancy. So you can imagine. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, but, and certainly I, I agree with you, but on a timely basis, none of those were gonna be approved uh, under any way. One, 100%, I, I completely <laughs> agree with that. It's, uh, it's, I think, you know, we, but these are the things that I think in parallel, we should be starting right now. Uh, and I believe that a company like Moderna at this point or Pfizer, they do have the, the, the scale and manufacturing capacity to be producing versions. But I guess to get back to your core question, uh, I, I agree. I don't think that there is a right or wrong answer here. Do you put BA1 or do you put BA4 or 5? Prior to Omicron, you know, I was, and many people were saying it should be Delta, you know, and, uh, but then also Omicron comes out. And so it's very, very difficult. And you kind of got to roll with the punches here and take your best, your best guess, but ultimately evolution is going to dictate, you know, whether you're right or wrong. All right. So we're, we're getting to the close, uh, really a lot of uh, wonderful comments and information, but to just circle back to the last uh, part, um, advice on booster now, booster wait, uh, can we boost now and four to five months later, get the bivalent. Of course, we don't know what the FDA will decide in terms of timing. If it were uh, if it were me and I was an at-risk individual, I think that, uh, or even if I'm not at risk, frankly, I would I would probably not wait at this point. Uh, I, I think that we are, we are currently in a pretty significant surge uh, and it's, we're probably going to see a repeat of what we've seen in, last year in terms of when and geographically sort of where these uh, where the waves are really happening the most. Um, if somebody has been infected, you know, in the last couple of months, then then I think that those individuals should probably feel better about waiting. But if your last exposure, your last vaccine was six, eight, nine, ten months ago, I would probably argue that now is the time to start thinking about uh, thinking about getting a, another vaccine. We know that each vaccine dose, yes, they are waning after time, but we also know that they're, that relatively speaking, they uh, are, are really providing quite a, a bit of relative uh, added protection for individuals that do last you know, a number of months at minimum. And so I think now is a good time to start uh, planning probably to get a booster. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I wanna thank Dr. Michael Mina for uh, the tremendous uh, amount of uh, valuable information and your insights. Um, and also please join us for the next segment where we'll, we'll focus a bit more on uh, testing in this current Omicron environment. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for that information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.